one benefit to taking a preaching class is you get to be filmed while preaching. So uh, that's what's going on today. Um, our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Um, but before I read, I want to provide a little bit of context. So context is a word that we've talked about a lot in youth group. Um, and without context, these can be just isolated stories, um, which do have value, but lose something when you don't have an understanding of the bigger picture. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and we've reached like a very pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. He spent some time going from place to place, teaching and healing along the way. But we've reached a point now where Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem and his inevitable death is looming. In chapter 16, we see Jesus asking his disciples, who people say that he is. And their responses are very encompassing. Some say this John the Baptist, right? Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. Some say one of the prophets. But then he asks them a more pointed question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter absolutely nails the answer. He responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him. And then this flies in contrast to what happens a little while later, as Jesus is beginning to let on to the disciples the pain and the agony that he's about to go through. Uh, and Peter simply isn't having it. He pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, saying, Lord, this will never happen. And it's pretty strange to pull somebody aside and lecture them about how they're wrong, um, especially after acknowledging that that same person is the true son of God. Um, and so Jesus rebukes him right back. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he goes on to challenge his disciples saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would lose or whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Push is about to come to shove. Jesus will soon be betrayed, and he lays out his expectations to his followers in preparation of his impending crucifixion. And that leads us to our text, which once again is Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, if you could stand for the reading of the word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them high up on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your words this morning. May you continue to share your truths through me. Speak into our hearts your insights and your truths that we may leave here with a better understanding of you and better equipped to serve you through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Can you think of a moment in your life where you said something dumb? Maybe it was to a parent, I'm sure guilty of that, or a friend, or a spouse, or significant other, maybe a fiance, I'm also guilty of that, um, or a teacher, maybe it was you said something dumb to someone you hardly knew, and the thing that you said was just so transcendently dumb that it completely ruined a situation, and maybe, just maybe, you're like me and you still think about it 10 plus years later and cringe today just like you did when you said it. I used to run cross country back when I was in high school. And, uh, and one day my teammates and I went on this seven mile recovery run through the neighborhoods in Briar. Um, I had just gotten promoted to the varsity workout so this was kind of a new crew I was running with and I was pretty nervous. Uh, I was also literally the slowest guy on this seven mile run and seven miles is a long time to realize that you're not as fast as everybody else. Um, and to be honest, seven mile run didn't seem like a recovery run at this point in uh, my career, uh, though I don't think I ever reached a point where it did. Uh, running seven miles on concrete doesn't really feel anything other than pure torture to me. But here we are, we're jogging, we're talking, and we're laughing, and we're having as good a time as you can while running up and down concrete hills in the heat of an early autumn afternoon. And there's another guy on the team named Ben. He's a senior and I'm a sophomore. And he's a little different than everyone else. He isn't like the coolest or the most uh, popular guy on the team, but he's really, really kind. He doesn't ever swear. And most importantly, he's really going out of his way to make a tall, gangly, anxious sophomore version of me feel comfortable in this new, scary, and significantly more competitive surrounding. And so we get to a point where we're about six miles deep in the seven-mile run. Everybody else is still carrying on conversation, making jokes. Uh, I'm the last guy in the pack, really quiet, trying hard to hide how hard I'm breathing, and quietly questioning to myself whether or not I'm going to make it. And somehow, in a group of only guys, and this still blows my mind today, the topic of conversation evolves into, how many kids do you want to have? How many kids do you want to raise? Which is maybe, maybe the only time in history, at least in my experience, that a group of guys have this conversation. Uh, but running seven miles does take quite a bit of time, so maybe we just ran out of things to talk about. I don't, I don't know. Um, but the question rolls around to this guy, Ben, and he says some outlandish number, like 10 or something like that, which is like at least seven kids more than anybody else had said. And so naturally, we're all a little bit shocked. Ten kids, are you crazy? But surprisingly, despite my fatigue, my quick wits kick in and provide me with a sharp little quip. 
And since most of my energy was being spent on trying to keep up with the rest of the guys in the group who were way faster than me, uh, my filter was turned off. There wasn't enough blood to get up there and keep the filter on. So I, and I was 16, so try and cut me some slack. Um, and so without thinking, in response to him saying 10 kids, I say this. 10 kids? You would probably need multiple wives to get there, right? <laughs> and folks, let me tell you, that was the wrong thing to say. Because on one hand, it's kind of a lame attempt at a joke. It really wasn't funny, uh, and it's not even really true. And on the other hand, and I remember this approximately 0.02 seconds after saying it, uh, Ben is Mormon. And so this whole group, this whole group laughs. Somebody makes the joke, obviously. I alley-ooped it for him, laid it up for him. And Ben laughs along too, but I could tell he didn't really find it too funny. Um, and just to be clear, uh, to my understanding, mainstream Mormonism doesn't promote polygamy. Uh, but when you're in high school, it's a pretty easy joke to make. Um, so fortunately, fortunately, we're at the tail end of this grueling seven-miler, a run that's currently taking us up a steep hill, which was good news for me because my face was already red, so when I blushed, nothing changed. I felt really bad, though. Um, I felt terrible, and I apologized to him when we got back to school, and he was really nice about it. And I, he knew I didn't mean anything by it, but I knew that I had said the wrong thing. In the Gospels, we see that Peter can be susceptible to a similar problem. One thing that I love about Peter is his willingness to really put himself out there, to act or to speak given an opportunity, even if there's a risk of him getting it wrong. And in the context surrounding our text today, we've seen Peter on both sides of the ledger. In chapter 16, he correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. And then he rebukes Jesus for prophesying his death. Then here in the Transfiguration, Peter volunteers to erect tents for everyone to stay and have this great mountaintop experience, which maybe we can understand and relate to that idea of Peter's, right? However, I believe that there can be danger in jumping to speak or to act, especially when God is doing something truly wonderful. Instead, sometimes we need simply to observe than to listen and obey. What does it look like to observe? Has anyone in here watched the TV show Psych? No, okay. Psych was a TV show that ran from 2006 to 2014 that followed an eccentric and immature young man named Sean Spencer who would work as a consultant for the Santa Barbara Police Department. And though he pretended to have supernatural psychic abilities to solve cases, he actually just had superior skills of observation and a tremendous memory. Sean is one of, uh, the son of one of Santa Barbara's finest detectives, and from a young age, Sean's father teaches him the power of observation. The show would provide flashbacks, and you would see a boy version of Sean out at a diner enjoying a milkshake with his father. Suddenly, his father would have him close his eyes and answer questions about the happenings at the diner. Sean, how many hats are in the room? Sean, where did the lady with the turquoise earrings come from? How likely is it that the couple in the corner booth will agree to a second date? And Sean would have to provide correct answers to these questions solely based on previous observations 
in order to enjoy his milkshake. And thanks to rigorous training his dad put him through as a child, he becomes this goofy consultant for the SBPD because of his unmatched powers of observation. And the show's pretty silly, and I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that you, know, you haven't lived until you've watched it, but you guys should give it a shot. Pretty good show. Uh, it's one of my favorites. But the show got me thinking, right? How observant am I? Life is extremely busy for most of us with work, with family, school, with sports, different hobbies. We're, we're pulled in all different directions. And it's very easy to get caught up in what we've got going on and all the things that pertain to only us. Do we consistently take time to truly observe what's going on around us? Or do we have the tendency to simply focus on what's directly in front of our faces? In the text we read that these four men take a journey up a mountain, and if a mountain peak isn't the best place to be observing, I don't know what is. If you've ever taken a hike up a mountain trail, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, I think you understand what I mean. You've got streams running adjacent to the path. You've got untouched wilderness surrounding you. And every so often there will be a break in the trees as you turn a corner or something for you to stop and to take in the beauty as you gaze down upon God's beautiful creation. But there's also another way to hike up a mountain that's far less enjoyable. A couple of months ago I met up with a few friends to go camping and unfortunately, most of us weren't made aware uh, that there would be a two-mile hike up to our campsite um, and that the entire trip would be switchbacks up the side of a mountain. Had I known that, I likely would have packed differently and I probably wouldn't have carried all 20 pounds of firewood that were strapped to my back. And so I sweated and grunted my way up the trail until we reached our destination and I hated every single second of it. Fortunately, I was able to enjoy the trip back down the following day. It's a lot easier when the firewood's gone. Um, but on the way in, I was only able to focus on my next step up the hill. I never took time to take a single opportunity to look around and appreciate where I was. The stage is set for this to be a truly beautiful experience here in Matthew, and it just becomes more grand as the transfiguration begins. What a marvelous opportunity to take in the glory of God, manifested in his perfect son, who is met by two pillars of the Christian faith on top of this mountain. And yet, in an effort to preserve this moment, Peter chimes in with an offer to build tents so that everyone can stay a while. And I think we can see where he's coming from. After all, what an awesome moment this is. Jesus has literally transformed. The text says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then Moses and Elijah appear as well and this conversation begins and this is an extremely powerful moment. But the reality is Peter was only seeing what was directly in front of him in this particular instance. Had he taken a step back to admire everything that was happening, he may have realized that this moment was far bigger than he initially thought. There was no way for Peter to truly understand, but this event was a foreshadowing of days to come, a foretaste to Christ's resurrection. His appearances on earth following his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. This was the beginning of the painful process Christ would have to endure 
to fulfill his purpose on earth. And this was only a taste of the glory that was to come. So let me ask you this. Are there things God is doing in your life that perhaps you are failing to observe? Like Peter, do we sometimes have the tendency to miss the bigger picture? I know that I do. And as Christians, we need to do a better job of taking a step back and observing the totality of the things that Christ is doing. The sermon series that Adam and Dirk have been preaching is simply titled, Pray First. And in our life groups right now, we're studying Oli Hallisby's book titled, Prayer. And though it wasn't in the mandatory reading, the young adult Bible study group read through chapter four on Monday, and it was really convicting for me. Hallisby points out the difficulty to be still before the Lord in prayer, preparing our hearts in prayer, and the fallacy of emphasizing activity too much when we pray. We talk to God about a great many things, perhaps even many great things, but we often fail to take time to listen. He likens prayer to a visit to a doctor's office. He says, supposing you did this at a doctor's office, suppose that when your turn comes, you enter his office, he offers you a chair, then suppose that you sit down and begin to tell him about all of your pains and troubles. And when you have talked a long time, suppose you get up, bid a polite adieu, and leave. What would the doctor think? Well, that is hard to say, but most likely he would think that some demented person had been in his office by mistake. How many times in an effort to communicate all of our troubles and worries to God, have we failed to allow God to speak into our lives? How many times have we failed to listen? In prayer, Hallisby challenges us to view prayer in three segments. An opening, a quiet time to prepare our hearts for the Lord, the verbal portion that we're all pretty familiar with, and then a closing quiet time to allow God to speak into our struggles or our situations. You may notice that two of the three sections of prayer were quiet, allowing us to truly listen to what our Father has to share with us. And I think listening is sometimes the most important part of prayer. In this moment of understanding, Peter has this idea to make tents for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And then the situation gets even more unbelievable. Verse five, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And understandably, the disciples are very afraid. Now, if you look back to Matthew chapter 3, you will see that this is actually the second time that God has said this. After Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, this happened in chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And you also may notice that he left out the command to listen at the end here. However, God could easily have tacked that clause onto this scenario as well, 
because Jesus had asked John the Baptist to baptize him, and John had initially refused, stating, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? And yes, his heart seems to have been in the right place as he was submitting to himself. He was submitting himself before the man he knew was the Son of God. But if you know Jesus is the Son of God, why wouldn't you just do what he says? And this seems like an obvious question, and it probably is, until we look introspectively and consider our own actions. I cannot even begin to count how many times I've sought God's guidance only to not heed it when it was given. You see, listening should lead to obeying. My parents are sitting over here right now, and I'm sure there are countless times when as a child I was asked to do something like uh, clean my room or take out the garbage or stop wrestling with my brothers. And in these scenarios, my parents never seem satisfied when the response of, with the response of, I heard you. When I continue to do whatever or not do whatever, they were telling me to change. Listening when not coupled with response is just as bad as not listening. In the text today, we see a confirmation that Jesus is the true son of the holy God. And a key insight we can draw from this text is the fact that everything Jesus did was in response to God's calling, even when his actions were unpopular or misunderstood. And he did these things in spite of John the Baptist protesting, or in spite of Peter saying he was wrong, or even Satan himself trying to dissuade him. And they did this by initially refusing to do what he asked, or by acting without seeing the bigger picture. I've been a youth minister here for almost two and a half years. Uh, but if it had been totally up to me, I wouldn't ever have been in this position. You see, when I was approached with the opportunity, I asked for a week to pray about it and to make a decision. And I had conversations with people I trusted. And I did pray about it, and I thought a lot about it. And ultimately, on the Sunday night when I needed to give my response, I decided to say no. After all, I was making pretty good money working the job I had. I had plenty of free time to explore other passions or to simply binge watch shows on Netflix like Psych. And I figured that my life was going pretty good. Why, why should I change it? God can use me where I'm at. I was a youth leader already. You know, I was doing fine. Uh, but fortunately, God didn't allow me to pass by his calling. And so I was as I was trying to eloquently type out an email that would reasonably decline the offer, I found it impossible to articulate why not. Because no matter how I phrased it, everything I wrote sounded extremely selfish and narrow. And so ultimately, an email that was meant to say no turned into an email that said yes, and absolutely none of that credit goes to me. God had simply asserted himself into a situation I was about to screw up, and, it's, and I'm eternally grateful for that. The real beauty of this text in Matthew chapter 17 is found in verse 7. Naturally, the disciples are terrified by the voice coming from the clouds. This, of course, <laughs> coming after Peter's great idea to build tents. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Does he point to the cloud and say, see? Listen to him and stop hindering me? Does he passive-aggressively gesture toward the cloud as if to say, maybe I do know what I'm talking about? 
No, he doesn't do either of these things. Instead, this happens. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And this is a powerful moment. Despite present and past failures, Jesus tenderly comforts his disciples in their weakness. And he invites them to stand and to have no fear. And when the awestruck disciples open their eyes in the quiet, they see only Jesus. What a beautiful metaphor that is for our lives. The truth is, God is doing absolutely amazing things around us each and every day, even when we don't see it. Maybe we're too busy interjecting our own actions when we should simply spend time observing God's handiwork and direction. Perhaps we're too busy speaking to hear the quiet whisper of Christ as he speaks truth and wisdom into our lives. And quite possibly we are too stubborn to allow the Holy Spirit to do amazing things through us. And yet, by the grace of the Father, there is Jesus, warmly inviting us to open our eyes and have confidence in our loving God. And when we do that, the love of Jesus is all that we see. It consumes us, it welcomes us, and it forgives us. May God give us the grace to be still before him, to observe and to listen, and to obey his perfect plan for our lives. Amen.